0: Chapter 9 of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter 9 A Wedding Present. In a room high in the palace, a young girl was trying on a frock. Before a tall pier glass, she stood indifferently, one hip sagging to the despair of the kneeling seamstress, her face turned listlessly from the image in the glass. Through the open window, banded with three bars, she looked into the rustling tops of palms, from which the yellow date-fruit hung, and beyond the palms the hot, bright blue sky, and the far towers of a minaret. "'A little more to the left, if you please, miss,' the woman entreated through a mouthful of pins, and apathetically the young figure moved. A bit of all right now, that drape, the woman chirped, sitting back on her heels to survey her work. She was an odd gnome-like figure, with a sharp nose on one side of her head, and an outstanding knob of hair on the other. Into that knob the thin locks were so tightly strained that her pointed features had an effect of popping out of bondage. She was London-born, brought out by an English official's wife as dressmaker to the children, remaining in Cairo as wife of a British corporal. Since no children had resulted to require her care, and the corporal maintained his distaste for thrift, Mrs. Hendricks had resumed her old trade, and had become a familiar figure to many fashionable Turkish harems, slipping in and out morning and evening, sewing busily away behind the bars upon frocks that would have graced a court ball, and lunching in familiar sociability with the family, sometimes having a bey or a captain or a pasha for a vis-a-vis when the men in the family dropped in for luncheon. As the girl did not turn her head, she looked for approbation to the third person in the room, a tall, severely handsome Frenchwoman in black, whose face had the beauty of chiseled marble and the same quality of cold perfection. This was Madame de Coulvain, teacher of French and literature to the jeune phil of Cairo, former governess of Amy, returning now to her old room in the palace for the wedding preparations. There was history behind Madame's sculptured face. In an incredibly impulsive youth, she had fled from France with a handsome captain of Algerian dragoons. After a certain matter at cards, he had ceased to be a captain, and became petty official in a Cairo importing-house. Later yet, he became an invalid. Life for the Frenchwoman was a matter of paying for her husband's illness, then for his funeral expenses, and then of continuing to pay for the little one which the climate had required them to send to a convent in France. There was, at first, the hope of reunion, extinguished by each added year. What could Madame, unknown, unfriended, unaccredited, accomplish in France? The mere getting there was impossible. The little one required so much. Her daughter was no dependent upon charity, and in Cairo Madame had a clientele. She commanded a price. And so, for the child's sake, she taught and saved— concentrating now upon a dot and feeding her heart with the dutifully phrased letters arriving each week of the years and the occasional photographs of an ever-growing unknown young creature it was to madame's care that amy had been given when the motherless girl had grown beyond old miriam's ministrations and for nearly nine years in the palace madame had maintained her courteous and tactful supervision indeed It was only this last year that Madame had undertaken new relations with the world outside, perceiving that Amy would not longer require her. "'Excellent,' she said now, in her careful, unfamiliar English, to Mrs. Hendricks, and in French to Amy, she added, with a hint of asperity, "'Do give her a word. She is trying to please you.' "'It is very nice, Mrs. Hendricks,' said the girl dutifully, bringing her glance back from that far sky. The little seamstress was suddenly all vivacity. "'And now for the sash. Shall we have at it, so? Or so?' she demanded, attaching the wisps of tulle experimentally. "'As you wish it. It is very nice,' Amy repeated vaguely. She picked up a bit of the shimmering stuff and spread it curiously across her fingers. A dinner-gown. When she wore this she would be a wife, the wife of Hamdi Bey. A shiver went through her, and she dropped the tulle swiftly in ten days more. Gone was her first rush of sustaining compassion. Gone was her fear for her father and her tenderness to him. Only this numb coldness, this dumb, helpless certainty of a destiny about to be accomplished, only this hopeless, useless brooding upon that strange, brief past. There was a stir at the door, and on her shuffling, slippered feet old Miriam entered, handing some packages to Madame de Coulevan then she turned to revolve about the bright figure of her young mistress her eyes glistening fondly her dark fingers touching a soft fold of silver ribbon while under her breath she chanted in a croon like a lullaby beautiful as the dawn she will walk upon the heart of her husband with foot of rose petals she will dazzle him with the beams of her eyes and with the locks of her hair she will bind him to her beautiful as the dawn it was the marriage chant of Miriam's native village, an old love-song that had come down the wind of centuries. Mrs. Hendricks, thrusting in the final pins, paid not the slightest attention, and Madame de Coulevan displayed interest only in the packages. If she saw the stiffening of the girl's face, and the rigid aversion of her eyes from the old nurse's adulation, she gave no sign. Towards Emmy's moods, Madame preserved a calm and sensible detachment. Never had she invited confidence, and for all the young girl's charm she had never taken her to her heart in the place of that absent daughter, as if jealously she had held herself aloof from such devotion. Perhaps in Amie's indulged and petted childhood, with a fond pasha extolling her small triumphs, her dances, her score at tennis at the legation, Madame found a bitter contrast to the lot of that lonely child in France. Certainly there was nothing in Amie's life then to invite compassion, and later, during those hard, mutinous months of the girl's first veiling and seclusion, she had not tried to soften the inevitable for her with a useless compassion. So now, perceiving this marriage as one more step in the irresistible march of destiny for her charge, she overlooked the youthful fretting, and offered the example of her own unmoved acceptance. What diamonds, she said now admiringly, holding up a pin and examining the card, from Seneha Hanem, the cousin of Hamdi Bey. A moment more she held up the pin, but the girl would not give it a look. And this, from the same jewellers, continued madame, while the dressmaker was unfastening the frock, aided by Miriam, anxious that no scratch should mar that milk-white skin. How droll! The box is wrapped in cloth, a cloth of plaid. Amy spun about. The dress fell a glistening circle at her feet. And with regardless haste, she tripped over it to Madame. How strange! She said breathlessly, "A plaid, a Scotch plaid. Memories of an erect tartan-draped young figure, of a thin bronze face and dark hair, where a tilted cap sat rakishly. Memories of smiling boyish eyes darkening with sudden emotion. Memories of eager lips." She took the box from Madame. Within the cloth lay a jeweler's case and within the case a locket of heavily ornamented gold. Her heart beating, she opened it. For a moment she did not understand. Her own face, her own face smiling back, yet unfamiliar, that oddly piled hair, that black velvet ribbon about the throat. Murmuring, Madame shared her wonder. It was Miriam's cry of recognition that told them, Thy mother! The grace of Allah upon her! It is thy mother! Eh! Those bright eyes! "'that long, dark hair that I brushed the many hot nights upon the roof.' "'But you are her image, Amie,' murmured the Frenchwoman, "'but half understanding the nurse's rapid gutturals. "'And then—your father's gift?' With the box in her hands the girl turned from them, fearful of the telltale colour in her cheeks. "'But whose else—his thought, of course,' she stammered. That plaid was warning her of mystery. The dressmaker was creating a diversion— Leaving, she wished to consult about the purchases for tomorrow's work, and Madame moved towards the hall with her, talking in her careful English, while Miriam bent towards the dropped finery. Amie slipped through another door, into the twilight of her bedroom, whose windows upon the street were darkened by those fine-wrought screens of wood. Swiftly she thrust the box from sight into the hollow in the machrubier made in old days to hold a water-bottle, where it could be cooled by breezes from the street leaning against the woodwork her fingers curving through the tiny openings she stared toward the west the sky was flushing broken by the circles the squares the minute interstices of the mashrubiyah she saw the city taking on the hues of sunset suddenly the cry of a muezzin from a nearby minaret came rising and falling through the streets la ilayi il allah Mohammedan, Mizul allah the call swelled and died away and rose again there is no god but the god and mahomet is the prophet of god from farther towers it sounded echoing and re-echoing vibrant insistent falling upon crowded streets penetrating muffling walls la ilaha illallah in the avenue beneath her two arabs leading their camels to market were removing their shoes and going through the gestures of ceremonial washing with the dust of the street. La ilahi! The city was ringing with it. The seamstress and the Frenchwoman, still talking, had passed down the hall. In the next room, Miriam's lips were moving in pious testimony. Ek hidu, and la ilahi! I testify that there is no god but Thee, god. In the street, the Arabs were bowing towards the east, their heads touching the earth and in the window above them a girl was reading a note the last call of the musin, falling from the tardy towers of cayet bay drifted faintly through the coloured air with resounding wax the arabs were urging on their beast miriam her prayers concluded was shaking out silks and tulle with a sidelong glance for that still figure in the next room pressing so close against the guarding screens she could not see the pallor in the young face she could not see the tumult in the dark eyes she could not see the note crushed convulsively against the beating breast in the fingers which so few moments ago had drawn it from the hiding place in the box Ryder had not dared a personal letter but clearly and distinctly he stated the story of the Delcasses. he gave the facts which the pasha admitted and the ingenious explanation of the two amis and for reference he gave the address of the Delcas aunt and agent in France, and of Ryder and McLean at the Agricultural Bank. The Pasha did not dine with his daughter that night. He had been avoiding her of late, a natural reaction from the strain of too excessive gratitude. A man cannot be continually humble before the young, and it was no pleasure to be reminded by her candid eyes of his late misfortunes, and of her absurd reluctance towards matrimony. As if this marriage were not the best thing for her, as if it were a hardship to make sad eyes and draw a mouth because one is to be the wife of a rich general, irrational, the little sweetmeat was irritating. To this point Tufik's buoyancy had brought him, and all the more hastily, because of his eagerness, to escape the pangs of that uncomfortable self-reproach. To Amie, in her new clear-sightedness of misery, it was bitterly apparent that he was reconciled with her lot, and careless of it. So blinded had been her young affection that it was a hard awakening, and she was too young, too cruelly involved to feel for his easy humors that amused tolerance of larger acquaintance with human nature. She had grown swiftly bitter and resentful and deeply cold. And now this letter it dazed her like a flame of lightning before her eyes, and then, like lightning, it lit up the world with terrifying luridity, fiery colored, unfamiliar. Her life trembled about her. Truth or lies? Custom and habit stirred incredulously to reflect the supposition. The romance, the adventure of youth, dared its swift acceptance. How could she know? Intuitively, she shrank from any question to the pasha, realizing the folly and futility of exposing her suspicion. If he needed to lie, lie he would, and in her understanding of that, she read her own acceptance of the possibility of his needing to lie madame de Coulevin? madame had never known her mother only old miriam had known her mother and miriam was the pasha's slave but the old woman was unsuspecting now and full of disarming comfort in this marriage of her wild darling through dinner she planned the careless seeming questions and then in her negligee as the old nurse brushed out her hair for the night daddy said the girl in a faint voice am i truly like my mother and when Miriam had finished her fond protestation that they were as like as two roses, as two white roses, bloom and bud, she launched that little cunning phrase on which she had spent such eager hoping. "'And was I like her when I was little, when first she came to my father?' "'Eh, yes, always thou wast the tiny image which Allah, glory to his name, had made of her,' came the nurse's assurance. "'I am glad,' said Amy in a trembling voice. She dared not press that more. Confronted with her unconscious admission, the old woman would destroy it, feigning some evasion. But there it was, for as much as it was worth. Presently, then, she found another question to slip into the old woman's narrative of the pasha's grief. Eh! To hear a man weep, Miriam was murmuring. Her beauty had set its spell upon him. And, and he lost her so soon. Three or four years only, was it not? ventured Amy that they had of life together? It seemed that Miriam's brush missed a stroke. "'Years I forget,' the nurse muttered. "'But tears I remember.' And she began to talk of other things. But it seemed to Amy that she had answered. As for that other matter of the dead Delcasse child, she dared not refer to it, lest Miriam tell the Pasha. But how many times she remembered had she been told that she was her mother's only one? "'Yet, oh, to know!' to hear all the story, to learn Ryder's discovery of it. It was all as strange and startling as a tale of gins. And the life it held out to her, the enchanted hope of freedom, of aid, oh, not again would she refuse his aid. She had no plans, no purposes. But that night, over her hastily donned frock, she slipped the black street mantle. and when at last, after endless waiting, the murmuring old palace was safely still and dark, She stole down the spiral stair and gained the garden, and then, a phantom among its shadows, she fled to the rose bushes by the gate. Breathlessly she knelt and dug into the hiding place of that gate's key. To the furthest corner her fingers explored the hole, pushing furiously against the earth, and then she drew back her hand and crushed it against her face to check the nervous sobs. The hole was empty. The key was gone. End of chapter nine. Chapter Ten of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Ten The Reception. In Tufik Pasha's harem everything was astir. It was the morning of the marriage, almost the very hour when the wedding cortege would bear the bride from her father's home to the house of her husband. The invited guests were already arrived, and streaming through the reception rooms, a bright feminine tide in evening toilettes surrounding the exhibited gifts, or pausing about tables of cool syrups. and their soft, low voices, the delicious musical tones of high-bred Turkish women rose like a murmuring of somnolent bees to the tenser regions about, tightening the excitement of haste. The bride was not yet ready. Still and white, she was the only image of calm in that fluttering, confusing room. Her nearer friends were hovering about her, and her maids of honor, two charming little Turks in rose robes, were draping her veil, while old Miriam, resplendent in green and silver, endeavored jealously to outmaneuver them on her knees the gnome-like mrs hendricks was adding an orange blossom to the laces on the train then she sat back on her heels her head a-tilt like a curious bird's her eyes beaming sentimentally upon the bride the prettiest i ever did see she pronounced with satisfaction as pretty as a wax figure now only a thought too waxy and like a wax figure indeed immobile rigid the bride was standing before them arrayed at last in the shimmering white of the sweeping satin, over-rich of lace and orange flowers, and shrouded in the clouding waves of her veil. White as her robes, pale as death and as still, the girl looked out at them, and only that sick pallor of her face and the glitter of her dark eyes betrayed the tumult within. "'Your diadem, my dear, you are keeping us attending,' came Madame de Coulevin's voice from the door the diadem that heavy circlet of brilliance which crowned the eastern bride in place of the orange wreath of western convention must not be touched by the bride's fingers but placed by one of her friends married and married but once and exceptionally happy in that marriage gul ad selection from her friends stepped hastily forward now a soft dimpled slow smiling girl her eyes drowsy with domesticity no question of gul ad happiness she extolled her husband, a young captain of cavalry, and she adored her infant son, a prodigy among children. Life for her was a rosy, unquestioning absorption. A shaft of irony sped through Emmy as she bent her head for its crowning at this young wife's hands and received the ceremonial wishes for her crowning of happiness, a crowning occurring but once in her lifetime. Irony was the only salvation for the hour. Without that outlet for her tortured spirit, She felt she would grow suddenly mad, hysterical, and babbling, or passionate and wild. So many moods had stormed through her since that night, when she had found all hope of rescue gone with her lost key. So many impulses seethed frantically now beneath her quiet, as she faced for the last time that white-misted image in the glass. She had a furious longing to tear off that diadem and veil and heavy robe, to scatter the ornaments and drive out all those maddening spectators all those interested, eager, unknowing, uncaring spectators of her humiliation, arranging her veil, draping her satins, as if gauze and silk were all that mattered to this hour, wishing her happiness, as if happiness could ever be hers now for the wishing, smiling, fluttering, complimenting, lending to the ghastly sacrifice the familiar acceptances of every day. If only she could wake from this nightmare, and find that it was all a dream. If only she could brush this confusion from her senses and from her heart its dumb terrors! If only she had the courage for some desperate revolt, some outburst of strength! I am ready, she said faintly, turning from the glass, and moved towards the door, while a young eunuch bent for her train, that train of three yards' length, which stretched so regally behind her in her slow descent of the stairs. In the French drawing-room below her father was waiting for the ceremonial farewell in which the father received the daughter's thanks for all his care of her. Mechanically, Emmy advanced. She stood before him, she lifted her eyes, and there passed from them a look of such strange, breathless, questioning intensity that it was like something palpable. She had not foreseen this sudden crisping of her nerves, this defiant passion of her spirit. Her father? Was he her father? Was it a father who had sold her, so careless, callous? Or was it only a father's semblance, and did there lie in the background of those petted childish years some darker shadow of a tragedy that had wrecked her mother's life and broken her heart like a flashing light that looked past between them it penetrated tufik's nonchalant guard and brought the unaccustomed colour to his olive cheeks his handsome eyes turned uneasily aside a girl's pique perhaps at the situation her last defiance of his power but for all his reassurance there was something deeper in that look something tenable accusing, which went into his soul. It was a moment in which the last cord of their relationship was severed for ever. She did not speak a word. She bent, not to kiss his hand as custom dictated, but to sweep a long, slow curtsy, that salutation of a maid of spirit to a conqueror, a bending of the pliant back, but with the head held high and the spirit unsurrendered. And yet there was a wretchedness in those proud eyes, and a blind fear and supplication. Useless to beg now, she knew it, and yet the eyes implored. And then she smiled, and before that smile, Tufik faltered in his paternal benediction and hastened the phrases. Little murmurs flew back and forth as she turned away, and then a hasty chatter sprang up as the guests hurried into their charchefs for the journey to the bridegroom's house. That day Emie did not put on her veil. On either side of her, as she went out her father's gate, Huge negroes held up silken walls of damask, and between those walls she walked into the carriage that awaited her, followed by Madame de Coulvain and the two little maids of honor. It was when the carriage began to move that the panic inside of her grew to a whirlwind. The horses' hooves, trotting, trotting, the motion of the wheels, seemed to be the onbearing rush of fate itself. If she could only stop it, if she could only cry out, tear open the windows, scream to the passers-by she knew these were only the impotent visions of hysteria but she indulged them pitifully she saw herself in those moments helpless and hopeless passing on into the slavery of this marriage amy no longer the daughter of tufik pasha but amy del child of a dead frenchman inheritor of freedom sold like any dancing girl and her own lips had assented in the supreme silly uselessness of sacrifice She had given herself for the safety of that man who had spent such careless indulgence upon her, that man whom perhaps her mother had loved, and perhaps had hated. Faster and faster the horses were trotting, leading the long file of carriages and impatient motors that bore the relatives and guests and trousseau, rolling on under the libecks and sycamores of the wide Shubra Avenue, once the delight of fashionables before the Gazira Drive had drained it of its throngs and its prestige. "'Now some bright-eyed urchins ran out from their games in the dust "'to curious attention, and through a half-moon gate Emmy caught once a glimpse of a young, unveiled girl "'watching eagerly from the tangled greens and ruined statuary "'of an old garden. "'Farther on came glimpses of farmlands, "'the wheat rising in bright spears, and of well-wooded heights, "'and in the distance the white houses of Demardakh "'against the Gibil Akmar beyond. "'But where were they bearing her?' Amy had a despairing sense of distance and desolation as the carriage turned again, Abdullah, the coachman, having traversed unnecessary miles to gratify his pride before the house of his parents, and made a zigzag way towards the river, where old palaces rose from the backwaters, their faces hidden by high walls or covered with heavy vines and moss. Deeper and deeper grew the girl's dismay. It was a different world from that bright modern Cairo that she knew. This was as remote from her daily life as the old streets of al-Rashid. Her thoughts flew forward to that unknown lord, that Hamdi Bey, whose image she had refused to assemble to her consciousness. Now she comforted her terror with a sudden assumption of age and dignity and kindness, of a courtesy that would protect her, and a deference that would assuage the horror of a life together, when unknown, fearful familiarities would alone vibrate in the empty monotonies. Before a high wall the carriage had stopped, a huge, repellent Ethiopian was standing before an open doorway through which a rich carpet was spread. Ah, but he looks like an ogre, that new eunuch of yours, Amy murmured one of the little Turks. The other more touched with thought, gave her a disturbed glance and laughed in nervousness. Madame alone serene ignored the dismaying impression. The palace is of a fine, ancient beauty, I am told she mentioned cheerfully for one wild instant. Amy thought to plead with her, to implore her to tell Abdullah to drive on, to give her the freedom of flight, if only flight down those deserted streets. And then a mad vision of herself in her bridal robes in flight brought the hysterical laughter to her throat. The time for flight had gone by, and as for Madame's pity on her, this was not the first time that Amy had thought of invoking her aid, but she had always known, too well, that thought's supreme futility sympathetic as Madame de Coulvain might be in her inmost heart, and Amy divined in her an understanding pity for the necessities of existence, never would sympathy betray her to rashness. She would never believe that in serving Amy she would not be ruining her, and even if assured of Amy's safety, she could never be brought to betray her own reputation for trustworthiness among the harems of Cairo, as well appeal to the rocks of the Macadam Hills. The carriage stopped, the negroes extended the damask walls, and one sprang to open the carriage door and bear the bride's train. In one moment's parting of the silken walls the girl saw a sun-flooded cluster of staring faces thronging for her arrival, and then the damask intervened, and through its lane, followed by her duenna and her maids of honour, she entered the arched doorway. She was in a garden, a great gloomy place, overspread with ancient moss-encrusted trees. A broken marble fountain flung up waters into which no sunlight flashed, and the heavy stepping-stones leading to it were buried in untrodden grass, a garden in which no one lingered. The Ethiopian was marshalling them to the left, to an entrance in the dark palace walls before them. Behind them the oncoming guests were streaming out in a veiled procession. He opened a door. Ancient, beautiful arches framed a long vestibule, and against a background of profuse cut flowers a man's figure stepped forward in the glittering uniform of the sultan's guard. Amy had a confused impression of a thin, meagre, dandified figure with a waspish waist, of a blonde moustache with upstanding ends, of sallow cheekbones and small, light eyes, smiling at her in a strained, eager curiosity. Through all her sinking dismay she had a flash of clear, enlightening irony at that look's suspense. If she were not as represented— if his cousin's fervour had misled his hope but in that instant's encounter his eyes cleared to triumph and gaiety and he smiled a smile curiously feline ironic for all its intended ingratiation a conqueror's smile winged to assure and melt he stepped forward there were formal words of welcome to which she returned a speechless bow and then he offered his arm and conducted her slowly up the stairs his sword rattling in its scabbard to the apartment which was to be her home And the prison for the spirit and the body. She knew in a moment that she hated this man, and that he inspired her with fear and horror. Across a long expanse of drawing room he conducted her to the ancient marriage throne upon its platform, surmounted by a pompous crown from which old embroidered silks hung heavily. Then with an unheard phrase and another bow, he left her to the day long ordeal of the reception while he withdrew to his own entertainment at her father's house. She would not see him again until night, when he would pay her a call of ceremony. She saw his figure hesitating a moment, as he faced the oncoming guests, such a flood of femininity, unmantled now and unveiled, sparkling in rainbow hues of silks and tulle and gauze, that he had never before faced and never would again. Like a bright wave the throng closed about him, and then surged on towards the bride upon the throne. How often, in these last years, Emmy had pitied that poor puppet of a bride, stuck there like some impaled, winged creature, helpless for flight, to the exhibition of the long stream of passers-by. How often she had promised herself that never would this be her fate, never would she be given to an unknown, and now— She was smiling as she faced them, that light, fixed smile she had seen so often on others' lips, the smile of pride trying desperately to hide its wounds, from the penetrating glances of the curious. Satirical, cynical, or sympathetic, that light smile defied them all, but beneath its guard she felt she was slowly bleeding to death of some mortal hurt. The sympathy unconsciously betrayed was hardest. The whispers of her young maids of honor, really, Amy, he looks so young, one would never surmise, were more galling in their intended consolation, more revealing in their betrayal of her friend's own shrinking from that arrogant, dandified old man, than the barbed dart of the uncaring, inquisitive, How do you find him, my dear? He has the reputation for conquest. They were all there, her friends, young, slim, modish Turkish girls, whose time had not yet come, glancing quizzically about the ancient drawing-room, with its solid side of mashrubier, its old wall-panelings of carvings and rare inlay, and then pointing their glances back at her, as if to ask, And this is our revoltee? Is this her end in this dim old palace among the ghosts of the past? Some, the frankest, murmured, But why did you not refuse? And others attempted consolation with a light, As well the first as the last, since we must all come to it. Of the married women there were those who raised blank bitter eyes to her, and others more mild, romantic, affectionate tried to infuse encouragement into their smiles, as if they said, Come, courage, it's not so bad. And what would you? We are women, after all. We do not need so much for happiness. Those dreams of yours for love, for a spirit to delight in your spirit, in place of a master delighting in your beauty alone, what are they, those dreams, but the childless stuff of fancies, for other races perhaps, but for you, take hold of life. There are realities yet in it to bring you joy. It was all in their eyes, their voices, their intonations, their pressure of her hands. And she stood there among them all, smiling always that smile demanded of the bride, looking unseeingly into their eyes, listening unhearingly to the sea of voices breaking on her ears, responding in vague monosyllables and a wider smile, while all the time her eyes saw only that face, that smirking, cynical old face, and the tide of terror rose higher and higher in her soul never had she given way to her fear never since the black night when she found the key was gone then after frenzied searching in impossible places she had stolen back to her room and buried her face in her pillow to stifle the breaking sobs of rebellion and despair and of a longing so deep and so terrible that it seemed to rend her with a physical anguish a pain so fiery that her heart would forever bear the scar never again would she see him now never would she know never would she know all she had refused his aid and he might believe her still aloof incredulous it was finished for ever and ever she had told herself that before but always there had been the key and now there was no key and no escape and her heart broke itself against the iron of necessity she had cried the night through Morning had brought her exhaustion not peace but a despairing submission why struggle when the prison gate is shut and if there was never to be freedom for her never again the sight of that too remembered face and the sound of that voice why then as well one fate as another and it was too late now to recede so she had called upon her pride and summoned her spirit to play its part to protect her from whispers and surmise and half-contemptuous pity she would surrender to this man because she must and she would win his respect by her dignity and worth But her soul she would keep its own, in its unsullied dreams, and in its memories. Life would be nothing but a hardship nobly born. But now she had seen the man, now this wild dislike, this sickening terror. To be alone with him, to have only the few days' grace of courtship which the Mohammedan custom imposes upon the bridegroom, to be forever at his mercy in this solitary palace, with its echoing corridors, its blackened walla, its damp breath of age she thought wildly of death. And all the time she was smiling, bending her cheek to the kiss of a friend, feeling the fingers of some well-wisher press upon her, listening to praises of her beauty. For she was beautiful, no image of wax now. The scarlet of her frightened blood was staining her cheeks, her eyes were bright as the jewels in her diadem, and beneath the thrown-back veil her dark hair revealed its lovely wealth. "'Is she not a rose? Will he not adore her, our Hamdi?' she heard that stout cousin of hamdi say to a companion and the two stared on appraisingly at the young girl in her freshness and virginal youth as if at some toy to invite the jaded appetite of a satiated master and still the throng filed by a strange throng beneath the flickering light and shadow of the mashrubier slender young turks or blond circassians in their paris frocks their eyes tormented or malicious and here and there like a green island of calm, some rotund matron, grave and serene, her head encircled with an old-fashioned turban of gauze, her stout flesh encased in heavy silks, bought at damask so as not to enrich the unbelievers at Lyon. And then the spectacle changed, the black street-mantles appeared, yasmux and charchefs, for now the doors were open to all the feminine world, and there came strange unknown women, slipping out from their grills for this pleasuring in a palace old-timers often draped and turbaned in the fashion of some far province of their youth women incredibly fat in rich stuffs of asia their bright deep-sunken eyes spying delightedly upon the scene or furtive poor women keeping courage in twos and threes now too at four came the women from the embassies a russian girl with whom Emmy had played tennis in ages past rosy now with yesterday's sun and sleepy with last night's dance who touched the bride's hand As if it were the hand of one half dead, already consigned to the tomb. Other girls she did not know who stared at her with the avid eyes of their young curiosities. Older women, experienced, unstirred, drinking their tea and smoking cigarettes, and gossiping of their own affairs. And occasionally among them a tourist agog with wonder and exultation, storing away details for a lifetime of talk, asking amiably the most incredible questions. And is it true you have never met your husband? "'Listen, Jane, she says she has never met him.' A girl in a creamy white silk came forward a little uncertainly. She was a pretty girl, with a curve of ruddy hair visible under her smart straw, and very bright eyes, where shyness was at variance with a friendly smile. Indeed, Ginny Jeffreys was extraordinarily intimidated by the occasion. She had a distinct sense of intrusion, mingling with her delight at having intruded, and she murmured her good wishes in an almost inaudible tone. "'It is very good of you to let us come. "'I wish you every happiness,' she said. Beside her a tall, slender figure in a black charchaff and yasmuk made its appearance. Amie's eyes slipped past the pretty American. The mechanical smile was frozen on her lips. Over the black veil she saw the hazel eyes, bright with excitement, vivid as speech, the eyes of the masquerader in the Scotch costume, the eyes of the man at the garden gate, Jack Ryder's eyes, THE EYES OF HER DREAMS. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 of The Fortieth Door This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley Chapter 11 The Forty Doors When Ryder had dispatched from the jewellers who had polished the locket for him, that package with its secret note and its warning plaid, he had no real assurance that the message would fall into Amie's hands, but he could think of nothing better, and he argued very favourably for his stratagem. That miniature should have some effect, and given the miniature and the bit of plaid cloth, Amie's quick wit ought to divine a message. She had always the key, he remembered, and the power of egress from her prison and surely it ought not to be difficult for her to devise some way of getting a letter into the post. So his hope fluctuated between the garden gate and the daily mail at the bank, and he rather surprised McLean by the frequency and brevity of his visits, and by the duration of his stay in Cairo. For that he had an excuse, both to McLean and to the deserted Thatcher at the excavation camp. Two excuses, in fact, some belated identification work to be done at the museum, and a cracked wisdom-tooth. Chiefly he spoke of the necessity for dentistry and accounted for his moods with his molar. Of moods he had many. Moods when he contemplated his behavior lightly and brightly, or darkly in unrelieved disgust, moods when he refused to contemplate it at all. But he stayed. That was the conspicuous and enduring thing. He stayed. Ginny Jeffreys returned from the Nile by express to find him ensconched at her hotel, and her bright confidence suffered no diminution of its self-respect and it was through Ginny that Chance set another straw of circumstance, dancing his way. Ginny had a frock she wished repaired. Mrs. Heath-Brown, whom she had met upon the Nile, recommended to her a Mrs. Hendricks, wife of a British soldier, and a most clever little needlewoman. Ginny looked up Mrs. Hendricks, and found it impossible to secure her for some days, as she was busy refitting for a fashionable wedding in the Mohammedan world. A night later, and two nights before the wedding, Ginny made a narrative of the circumstances for Jack Ryder's benefit. "'Such frocks as I have to do, and the young lady no more caring,' had been a saying of Mrs. Hendricks that Jenny passed interestedly on to Jack. She had no memory of the young lady's name, but distinctly she recalled that she was young and beautiful and to marry a general. It was enough to launch Jenny's eager interest in Mohammedan marriages, and foster the wish that she might attend one. She regretted Mrs. Heath Brown's absence and her lack of acquaintance, and suggested that Jack ought to know some one. "'Better than that, I'll take you,' said Jack, with a promptness that brought a light to Miss Jeffrey's eyes. There was also a light in Jack Ryder's eyes, a swift burning of excitement and adventure. Why not? The thing was possible. Muffled in a charchef, and veiled with a heavy yasmuk, armed with enough Arabic for the briefest of encounters, he might dare the danger. Who in the world would discover him? Who would ever know?' The thing was unthinkable. It was a desperate desecration, comparable only in his vague analogies to the Mecca pilgrimage and the profanation of a holy tomb. But its very improbability would prevent detection. Only Jinny had to keep her mouth extremely shut before and afterwards. He impressed this upon her so thoroughly as they did their shopping for the costume together the next morning that she had compunctious moments of solicitude when she said he really ought not to. She would feel responsible thereupon he laughed and dared her to be game and she grew all mirthful confidence again but that night sitting alone in a native cafe over his turkish coffee ryder was grimly serious he knew that it was a mad thing to do he felt not so much the danger he ran from discovery but the danger to his already shattered peace of mind from another glimpse of that strange girl that young unknown on whom he had spent such time and thought of late that she seemed a very part of his existence "'What was the good of going to her wedding reception?' "'Feebly he told himself that it was his only chance to inform her "'upon the history of the Delcasses. "'There might have been reasons for her non-appearance at the gate, "'for her not writing. "'He could have no glimmering of what went on behind those barred windows. "'This was his only chance, he meant to say, to tell her, "'but his eager senses murmured, to see her again. "'That was it, to see her again. "'He owned the lure at last, with a bitter ruefulness.' But, he brightened up at that, it was partly his duty to himself. Now he had all sorts of fool imaginings about this girl. He was remembering her as something lovelier than a hurri, more enchanting than fairy magic, more sweet than spring. He owed it to himself to rout these imbecile prepossessions and prove clearly and dispassionately that the girl was just a very nice little girl, a pretty bride, marrying into a very distinct life from his own, and a girl with whom he would not have an idea in common. A girl, in fact, far inferior to any American. A girl not to be compared to Jinny Jeffries. Besides, there was fun in the thing. It tempted him tremendously. It was adventurous, romantic, forbidden. He heard the word echoed in Turkish behind him. So engrossed in his thoughts had he been that he had been inattentive to the rhythm of the old Kazib, the tale-teller's voice, as he held forth from the divan, beside his long-stemmed pipe, to his nightly audience of men and boys, camel-drivers, small merchants, desert men from the long caravans, who were the frequenters of this café. To-night there were few about the old man, and Ryder had small difficulty in drawing nearer the circle. A green-turbaned Arab, with the profile of a Washington, and the naive eyes of youth, whispered to him courteously that it was the tale of the third Kaland, and the Prince Azib was in the palace of the forty damsels who were farewelling him, as they were to depart, according to custom, for forty days. Kazib, with a faint salutation of his turban towards the newcomer, went slowly, sonorously on with his tale. We fear, said the damsel unto Azib, lest thou contraire our charge and disobey our injunctions. Here now we commit to thee the keys of the palace, which containeth forty chambers, and thou mayest open of these thirty and nine. But beware, and we conjure thee by Allah and by the lives of us, lest thou open the fortieth door, for therein is that which shall separate us for ever. For a moment the café faded from Ryder's eyes. He was in the gloom of a garden, a shadowy darkness just touched by a crescent moon, and beside him in the shrubbery, a dark shrouded form shaking its shawled head at him in denial, and whispering, lightly but tremblingly, It is a forbidden door, forbidden as that fortieth. There are thirty and nine doors in your life, Monsieur." that you may open, but this is the forbidden. He had meant to look up that tale, and now chance was reminding him of it again. A superstitious man, Ryder's great-grandfather, perhaps, would have felt it an omen of warning, and a devout man, Ryder's grandfather, perhaps, would have taken it for a sign from heaven to divert his steps. Ryder reflected upon coincidence. When I saw her weeping, Kazib was intoning, And now Ryder attended, his scanty knowledge of the vernacular straining and overleaping the blanks. Prince Azib said to himself, By Allah, I will never open that fortieth door, never, and in no wise. A wise bird, thought Ryder to himself, drawing on his cigarette. And I bade her farewell, continued the voice, slipping into the first person. Thereupon all departed, flying like birds, leaving me alone in the palace, when evening drew near. I opened the door of the first chamber and found myself in a place like one of the pleasances of paradise. It was a garden with trees of freshest green and ripe fruits of yellow sheen. And I walked among the trees and I smelt the breath of the flowers and heard the birds sing their praise to Allah, the One, the Almighty. Alhamdulillah, murmured RIDER'S neighbours reverently, and I looked upon the apple whose hue is parcel red and parcel yellow and I looked upon the quince, whose fragrance putteth to shame musk and ambergris, and upon the pear, whose taste surpasses sherbet and sugar, and the apricot, whose beauty striketh the eye as if she were a polished ruby. On the morrow I opened the second door, and found myself in a spacious plain set with tall date-palms, and bordered by a running stream whose banks were shrubbed with rose and jasmine, while privet and eglantine oxeye violet and lily, narcissus, origane, and winter giddy-flower the borders, and the breath of the breeze swept over those sweet-smelling groves. How inadequate, Ryder realized, had been the description given by the Book of Genesis to the Garden of Eden. And the third door, droned on the rhythmic voice, into an open hall hung with cages of sandalwood and eaglewood full of birds which made sweet music, such as the mockingbird and the kusha, the merle, the turtle-dove, and the Nubian ring-dove. A trifle restively, Ryder stirred, he liked birds, but he wanted to be getting on to that fortieth door, and this was slow progress. Not a sign of impatience marred the bright, absorbed content of the other listeners, intent now upon the wonders behind that fourth chamber revealed, stores of pearls and jasons and beryl's, and emeralds and corals and carbuncles, and all manner of precious gems and jewels, such as the tongue of man could not describe. The story-teller proceeded, Then, quoth Prince Azib, now verily am I the monarch of the age since by Allah's grace this enormous wealth is mine, and I have forty damsels under my hand, nor is there any to claim them save myself. The handsome Arab beside Ryder inhaled his pipe luxuriously. By the grace of Allah, he said reverently. Then I gave not over opening place after place until nine and thirty days were passed, and in that time I had entered every chamber except that one whose door I was charged not to open, but my thoughts ever ran upon that forbidden fortieth and Satan urged me to open it for my own undoing. I see his finish, said Ryder, interestedly to himself, and he thought of the analogy. So I stood before the chamber, and after a few moments' hesitation opened the door, which was plated with red gold, and entered. I was met by a perfume whose like I had never before smelt, and so sharp and subtle was the odour that it made my senses drunken as with strong wine, and I fell to the ground in a fainting fit, that lasted a full hour when i came to myself i strengthened my heart and entering found myself in a chamber bespread with saffron and blazing with light presently i spied a noble steed black as the murks of night when murkiest standing ready saddled and bridled and his saddle was of red gold before two mangers one of clear crystal wherein was husked sesame and the other also of crystal containing water of the rose scented with musk when I saw this, I marvelled, and said to myself, Doubtless, in this animal must be some wondrous mystery, and Satan. Satan the stoned, murmured Rider's neighbor religiously. Satan cozened me, so I led him without, and mounted him, and struck him withal. When he felt the blow, he neighed a neigh, with a sound like deafening thunder, and opening a pair of wings, flew up with me in the firmament of heaven, far beyond the eyesight of man. After a full hour of flight he descended, shaking me off his back lashed me on the face with his tail and gouged out my left eye causing it to roll upon my cheek then he flew away on rolled the voice narrowing the prince's descent to the table of the other one-eyed youths but rider was unheeding and at the close he inclined his head with the other listeners murmuring may allah increase thy prosperity as he felt in his pockets for the silver which the others were drawing from turban and sleeves and sash to lay in the patriarch's lap and then raised his head to question diffidently, Would you interpret, O Kazib, the meaning of that door? For I hear that it hath now become a saying of a forbidden thing. The sage hesitated, sucking at his pipe. Then he said slowly, To every man, O youth, is there a forbidden door, behind which waits the steed of high adventure, with wings beyond man's riding, and so the rider is lost, and his vision is gone. But for him who could ride rider suggested Salah. who can say till he has tried his destiny and better are the nine-and-thirty chambers of safe pleasance than the lonely sightlessness of the outcast one it is a tale which if it were written upon the eye-corners with needle gravers were a warning to those who would be warned for a moment their eyes held each other smiling but grave rider's thoughts were of the morrow of that forbidden entry he was planning to make of the risks the wild uncertainties Wisdom and counsel looked significantly out at him, out of those patriarchal eyes. Prudence and sanity clamoured within him for a hearing. And then he smiled, the whimsical, boyish smile of young adventuring. But whoever, O oh my father, had opened that forbidden door the veriest crack, and breathed its scent and glimpsed its dazzlement, then for him there is no turning back, he confided. He rose, and Cassib's eyes followed him. Luck go with you, my son, he said clearly, in Allah's name. And smiling in faint ruefulness, May Allah heed thee, Ryder murmured piously. End of chapter 11 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.